Numbers chapter 32. Now, when we studied the book of Exodus so many years ago, we saw when it came to the tabernacle that you could not see the beauty of the tabernacle unless you entered in. Now, the tabernacle from the exterior was badger skins. It was probably these gray, just plain skins. It'd be what we called, or at least they used to call it, I don't know if they still have it, plain wrap. You, you, you would wonder, you know, here's these Jews, and we've heard what their God did to, 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 to Egypt and how he delivered them, and you would want to see their God, and you would want to see the, well, what's the dwelling place of their God? And as you saw, you would think, is that it? And see, that's the thing. You would just never really understand. You would just see this, this tabernacle, this tent thing, and you would wonder, well, if their God is so great, well, then how come that's all there is? Well, the fact of the matter is you can't see the beauty of the Lord unless you enter in. And that was the whole point. You need to enter in. And so from the interior, it was a place that was truly suitable for the dwelling of God Almighty. There were the things of gold, silver, and brass. Gold, that which was fit for a king. Silver, that which represented purity. And brass, that which represented judgment. There were the tapestries that were on the curtains and on the ceilings that were inside again. In order to see the beauty of them, you'd need to enter in. And they were all done in blues, purples, and scarlets. Blues, that God is the God of the universe. Purple speaks of His majesty. And scarlet speaks of the blood that would eventually wash our sins away. In the Christian life, it's the same thing. You can't be on the outside looking in and truly understand the totality of all that there is in the Christian life. You've got to enter in. And you can't enter in with just your big toe. You've got to enter in with the totality of who you are. How many times have you heard somebody, maybe you even made the comment, well, I'll try it. I'll try, or I tried Christianity. Christianity is not something that you can try. It just doesn't work that way. Either you're all in or you're all out. Jesus setting the example upon the cross. He was there. God gave his all and he was crucified on that cross and gave of his life. So as Christ was all in, we need to be all in. But as you enter in, you see the beauty of the Lord. You see the gold. You see that which is fit for a king. You see the silver. You see the purity of Christian life. You see the the bronze and the brass, and you see the judgment, but you also see the blue. You see all of the universe and how God is Lord over all the universe. You see the purple. You see His majesty, the holiness of God, the unobtainable majesty of God. And then the scarlet, again, the blood that washed your sins away. So in order to be all in in the Christian life, we must enter in. We must enter into God's Word. And I jokingly said it, but yes, in a year or so, maybe two, we'll have gone through the Bible and... We'll start again because it never ends. It never ends. Read through the Bible every year. Well, you never really get it all down. God always has something new to show you. Entering into fellowship, the time that we spend with fellow born-again believers in the study of God's Word, but also just enjoying one another and strengthening one another for the purpose of ministry. And then entering into prayer, having that intimate conversation with our God. We'll be doing that tomorrow night in our monthly prayer meeting here at 7 o'clock. But only those who truly enter in will really be able to understand what it means to have that intimate relationship with Lord God of the universe. For Israel, it was God's desire that his people would enter into the land that he promised them. And that's what Numbers has been all about. It's all about that journey. It's about the journey that started, well, they left Egypt, 
got to Mount Sinai and they received the law. That was about a two-year period. And then from there, they went to Kadesh Barnea and they sent the spies in. Spies came back, at least ten of them, with a bad report and God was displeased with them. And so they wandered in the wilderness for some 38 more years. Well, here they are at the plains of Moab and they're prepared to preparing to enter into the promised land. Finally, it's been 40 years since they left Egypt. And so this is the will of God. And what I'd ask you is, what path in the will of God are you taking? Are you on the two-year plan? This really should have taken two years and a couple of months. Or are you on the 40-year plan? One is the plan of obedience. One is the plan of disobedience. Either way, it's going to get you to that destination but don't you want to enter into the blessings of God sooner rather than later? For us, it's not so much a land, but it's a life. To enter into that life of obedience to God. It's that life that God promises that we are protected in, provided for, and blessed. And I'm speaking in spiritual terms. That God will protect my salvation and watch over and keep me from any evil. That He would provide for my every need and the Lord God would bless me under the shadow of His wings. But the problem enters in, and that's what we're going to be looking at in Numbers chapter 32, when we become borderline believers that we fail to realize all that God has for us in our Christian lives as we're on the cusp of entering in, but we don't really do so. We're going to look at three tribes that were right there on the border, right there on the border, but they didn't enter in. The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Half-tribe of Manasseh didn't really come to the forefront yet, and they're not mentioned right away. But a borderline believer, well, what they do is they depend upon their own understanding, and because of that, they're never able to enter into the security of the shadow of God's wings. A person who dwells on the border, and again, keep in mind, that's what they did. They were all the way up to the Jordan, but they didn't cross the Jordan, not to take of their possession. They never really enter in, and again, that type of person, when you see them, you always wonder, are they really saved? Are they not saved? And it's not really our determination to make, but it's so sad when you, when you can't really tell. When they're just dancing on the border with one foot in the world and, and one foot in the Christian life. And they so seem to be those which the Lord spoke of in the book of Revelation very seriously. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so you see the mindset of the Lord when it comes to somebody who is straddling that border. Also, the issue with a borderline believer, he will exhibit a flawed type of faith. Their choices are going to be based upon the potential of personal gain or comfort rather than the will of God. They'll make their evaluations based upon the visual rather than the spiritual. Rather than seeking and trusting the will of God, they're going to go after their own ways and their own will, even to their own detriment. So again, these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they have a decision to make. And problem, just like Lot, they make the decision based upon what they see before them, rather than seeking out God. In Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 through 11 Abraham's guys and Lot's guys, there's conflict between them. And Abraham realizes we need to split up. 
There's just too much conflict. This isn't a good thing. We need to split up. And so Abraham tells Lot, you choose the land that you want. You let me know what you want, and then I'll take whatever is left over. And so Genesis 13, verses 10 through 11, it says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you look towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So there's Lot. He's got a decision to make. And what does he base his decision on? It looks like Egypt. It looks really good. But do you remember what Egypt is? Egypt is a picture of the world and that which is worldly. And so he was basing this upon his own estimation of what good is or his own standard. Now, this is Lot's fault and Lot's going to be responsible for this. But Abraham's got to take a little bit of responsibility as well. Because what did he do? He entered into the promised land. And what was one of the first things? Hardship entered in and he went to the world and apparently it affected the judgment of Lot. And so Lot, he's got this opportunity to make a decision that's going to affect the generations to come and he does so based upon the world. Well, here we are. Israel, they're on the plains of Moab. They're just getting ready. Now there's going to still be a period of time. Deuteronomy is going to be the second giving of the law just before the people enter in, and we'll see the death of Moses and all. But nonetheless, they're right there. They're preparing to go in, and then you've got these three tribes. They're looking around, and they're thinking, these things look pretty good right where we're at. And so verses 1 through 5, the first thing we see is their reasoning. It says, now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad, again, the half-tribe of Manasseh would come a little bit later, had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jasur and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eleazar the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Atheroth, Dibon, Jasir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielal, Shebam, 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 Nebo, and Beon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let the land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. And so there's all of Israel. They're preparing to enter in, to go in, and this one or these three tribes, two right now, they're looking around and saying, well, you know what? This is good enough. How often have you settled for good enough in your Christian life? How long have you leaned upon your own understanding, looked around, and you thought, well, this is going to be sufficient? I wonder how far they fell short of the glory that God had for him in his possession when they took possession of that which God did not necessarily have for them. Again, this is a decision that is based upon what they saw rather than what they were told. Now, when we studied Habakkuk, we saw in chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by faith. And so it doesn't really matter what the land looks like. Lot, yeah, I know it looks like the world, but you're not to be of the world. You're to be separated from the world. Don't base your decisions upon worldly, worldly facades. Because that's the best that the world can offer is simply a facade. Because how many times have you heard the expression, it's 
it's all going to burn. And so it's not based upon what the world projects to us. It's based upon what, the, what our God has told us. And so they were told to enter in and to possess their inheritance, but what they saw looked better than what God had told them to do. We so easily do this as well, dependent upon even common sense rather than biblical instruction. That's why we are to keep our nose planted in the Word of God. It's why we need to go to God daily to hear the things that He has to say to us because I guarantee you, He is going to make these things real in your life. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, Trust in the Lord. It says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. I don't know about you, but that's a lesson that I had to learn over a period of time. Still learning, actually. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. That means don't be a borderline believer. That means don't fall short of what God has for you. That means enter in with the totality of who you are, because again, it's only as you enter in that you're really going to see the beauty of the Lord. And so uh, Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh, you weren't able to see the true beauty of God because you were on the border. You didn't truly and completely enter in. What they should have done was trust in the Lord with all of their heart and lean not on your own understanding. Because when you lean on your own understanding, you're just seeing the peripherals. You're just seeing the exterior and you're not seeing deep as God sees. And so God knows and God understands what is best for us. And he's, he, he's fostered this Christian life by the sending of His Son. That as we enter in, we're in the place that we need to be. We've entered into the place that all of your situations and circumstances that you deal with will be able to be dealt with by the hand of God as you're obedient to His Word and His leading. But if we're not entering in, then we're falling short of that because, again, what's the best we can do for evaluation is that which we see, and that which we see can even be deceptive. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, He will guide you through the details of your life. And that's what you need to consider. Is Jesus Christ the Lord of my life? I'm talking to born-again believers. Is he truly the Lord of your life? If he's the Lord of your life, then he is sitting on the throne of that which governs over your life. And you look to him for instruction. Again, I've repeated it so many times, but Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Because it doesn't make sense to call somebody Lord, but to be disobedient to the things that they say. Well, we have a whole book of the things that he said, and we need to be obedient to that. Again, Genesis 13.10, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zeor. Well, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, chapter 32, verse 4 of Numbers, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. So this made sense to them, but was it the will of God? Well, next thing that we see in verses 6 through 15 is the reaction of Moses, and Moses is very concerned. It says, And Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? So Moses was concerned that they were just going to inherit the land and stay there, and the rest of the tribes were going to have to go in and clear out the land. Verse 7, Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? 
Thus your fathers did when I sent, just as your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day, and he swore an oath, saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephaniah, the uh, Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, from whom they have followed, from whom have followed holy the Lord. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and you will destroy all of these people. And so the anger of Moses was aroused for a variety of good and even godly reasons. And Moses' first point of anger was because of the purpose of the nation. Again, in verse 6, Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Israel, Shall your brethren go... uh, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Well, they were all to go and to fight that good fight to dispel the nations from the land. And every warrior was valuable for the cause. And he understood that this could spread like wildfire because what they're really doing is they're taking that same attitude of those other spies that came in and discouraging the people. And Moses is the leader. He's understanding that disaster that this could very well bring upon his people. And so again, as leaders over whoever it is that God has called you to be a leader over, family, whoever it is that's less mature than you are, we've got to make sure that we're staying again on that path according to God's will. Because, see, Moses understood the concept that every soldier is necessary. Every soldier is valuable. Not so much to have numbers to go in there and fight, but this was God's desire that we would fight this battle together. Now, and that concept of every facet of the army necessary for an army to achieve its goals. I looked it up on the internet, so it must be true. I meant to ask Frank if it was truly true, but I've heard something along these lines before. For every infantryman out in the field, now the proportion I found was it requires eight people to support that one infantryman out in the field, you know, with supplies and, uh, you know, just, just everything that's involved in it. And, um, and I had heard something like that before, so we'll just go with that number eight to one. So what that tells me is, is that everybody is valuable for the outcome of the battle to be fought. And so for Moses, it was beyond him that these three tribes, two at this point, would stay on that side of the, side of the border and not truly enter in and engage in the fight. And it's the same thing here in this church. You know, we've used the example of every part of the body, you know, as Paul did in Corinthians, being valuable, but every member of the army is valuable as well for everybody doing his part. You've got people in children ministry doing their part. You've got security out in the parking lot doing their part. You've got Rosemary doing hospitality. I don't know what she's got for us tonight, but hopefully she's doing her part. And, uh, and the teaching, and you just got, as you have everybody doing your part, then it's fully functioning and we're moving forward to God's army. 
But if we have people who are unfaithful and people who are letting down, then the army again is never going to be all that it can be. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, Paul told Timothy, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He knew that Timothy needed to do his part in the battle as he did. He would influence others. And if you go, go back to Paul, you can tell Paul, you know what, Paul, I knew what your concerns were with this man, timid Timothy. But let me tell you, he did do his part. And he did affect the generations because he did dig in and he did fight the battle and he did not retreat and he did not surrender. Again, with Timothy, we don't know scripturally, but tradition tells us that he gave his life for his faith. And so, if everybody participates, then we, the church, can be all that God has called us to be. Moses' second point of anger was because of the possibility of discouragement. Verse 7, Now why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Again, he remembers that it only took 10 doubters 38 years previously to affect millions. And just think of all the people that died in the wilderness because of that lack of faith. And that lack of faith was built upon that false testimony. What was the false testimony built upon? They were going according to their own understanding. They saw these people in the land and they had walls built up into heavens. And they did. And these people were giants. And they were but they weren't bigger than God. And that's what I encouraged Calvary Chapel, Rancho Cucamonga yesterday, to once again consider your God. That your God is a great and awesome God. Your God is bigger than anything of this world and any obstacle that comes before us. And He is able to overcome these things. Are you a small God person? Or are you a big God person? Who is King David? King David was a big God person. You know, when he faced Goliath, there was the giant. Now, King Saul, King Saul was a small God person. King Saul was up on the ridge, not entering into the valley because he was concerned about, well, those giants, those, the enemy, they, they look pretty big and pretty fearful. I was there when I was in Israel, and I saw one side in the hills that were over there, and the other side, and there was hills over there, and in the middle was kind of this valley thing, and in the middle of the valley, there was this creek bed kind of a thing, and it was filled with stones. I got five of them for my grandchildren. They're on our mantle over at our house. And I could just see how this would transpire. It would transpire, and there would, there would, there would this, young, this young boy go. And he would pick up these stones because the river was closer to the Israel side. And I would imagine as he went through that riverbed, he probably picked up his stones there and continued on and faced the giant. But the one thing he knew is, well, he was confused. Why are the armies of the living God standing here and allowing that heathen to blaspheme their God. And it was beyond him, because David knew who his God was. These people, they were following a leader who was a small God, kind of a guy, and so nothing was happening. David overcame him, it inspired the troops, and they went, and there was a great slaughter that day, because David understood who his God was. Now, what did Saul do? Saul was going according to his sight and his own understanding. And what did it do? It paralyzed the armies of God. David, he had his eyes focused upon the Lord. And what did it do? It inspired the armies of God. 
Moses' third point of anger was the memory of the previous punishment, verses 8 through 11. Now, he's just realizing, didn't we learn our lesson through all of this? Again, we can ask ourselves the same thing. How many times do we have to learn a lesson? Sometimes God's got to discipline us time and time again. But I saw this, this concept as we were studying through Nehemiah. Nehemiah, this other godly leader, big God kind of a guy, and doing this amazing work. But he's concerned because he sees the sins of Israel. He leaves and he comes back and he's shocked to see where things have regressed to. And in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25, he saw that these men of Judah were marrying these women of the land and they were producing kids. And he was just beside himself, it says in verse 25. So I contended with them. I I confronted them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Now, it wasn't so much the marrying of the pagan women, although it was, but, but you've got to see really what it was. It was disobedience to God's word. And his mindset is, didn't we just learn this lesson? Didn't the 70 years of captivity, didn't it teach you guys anything? And Moses can say, didn't the last 38 years of wandering in the wilderness, seeing your parents die before your eyes, before they could achieve the promises of God, didn't you learn anything? And I tell my kids that, that, you know what, I've been through that, and you need to learn from my experience, although they need their experiences. I pray my grandchildren would learn without having to learn it the hard way. But that's what Moses' concern is. They're going to lead us back into sin, and they're going to bring the judgments of God back upon us. Oh, that we would be people that learn our lessons the first time. Moses' fourth point of anger is just simply the continued nature of man. Verse 14, And look, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul goes through a list of sins and he says, And such were some of you. Well, they were all part of partaking in one of those sins that he had just listed. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, who I was should be just that, who I was, and it ought not to be who I am now. Now, Lord, enable me through the power of your Spirit to walk in faith in obedience in the Lord. Now, to walk in obedience, when is it a greater walk of obedience? Is it a greater walk of obedience when you see everything spelled out in front of you? That's not really obedience. That's just kind of easy. How much more so when you know the will of God and it looks tough, it looks hard, or maybe even looks impossible. It's then that God is glorified through the step of faith. And God had told these tribes that they were to enter in, but there they are again. They're dwelling upon the border. There's going to be a certain amount of them that enter in, but these three tribes, these three tribes are not seeking the will of God. And then Moses' fifth point of anger is for the care of the people. 
I'm sure he's thinking now how close they are. Don't fail now. Hebrews 4.1 Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. You're right there. We need to continue on. We need to push on. And then we see the response of Reuben and Gad in verses 16 through 19. Then they came near to him and said, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place, and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance." For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan. And so as noble as their response was, it still ended up being to their detriment. In First Chronicles chapter five, verses twenty five through twenty six, it says, And they were unfaithful to the God of their fathers, and played the harlot after the gods of the people of the land, whom God had destroyed before him. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pol, king of Assyria, that is, Tiglath-Pilser, king of Assyria, and he carried the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh into captivity. They were not in the fold. They were not where God had called them to be. And again, it was to their detriment. When you're on the border, when you don't enter into the protection of your God, you become vulnerable. In the Christian life, not entering into fellowship, not entering into prayer, not entering into all that God has you, you're left vulnerable to the world. And how many people have you known, have you known, haven't truly entered in? Maybe they seem to enter in for a period of time. Maybe they used to sit in the front seat of the sanctuary. And then all of a sudden, they kind of move to the back seat of the sanctuary. Not if you're sitting in the back seat, you're okay, don't, don't worry. But they did. They, they kind of moved to the back seat. And then instead of coming into the sanctuary, they were sitting out in the fellowship hall. They, you know, they were watching it on TV, but they, they were no longer coming in. And then instead of being at church, however many times they were at church, you started seeing them less and less and less. And then finally, the world took them away captive. And again, it's so necessary that we enter in and stay rooted and grounded and connected. That's why we have retreats. We have retreats. We don't make money on retreats. Matter of fact, we lose money as a church on retreats. But I see the value of them because it it, it brings people in. brings people in to the place that God has for them. It's why we have small groups. Because what does it do? It builds fellowship and it brings people in. We have this one man who attended our church quite a long time ago. I really think that it was his wife's idea to come to church, or at least come to our church. And his wife was always wanting her husband to be involved, and he never really was. And she'd always tell me, you need to call him, you need to do this. And I can't drag him in. He's got to want to come in. So finally, she was all excited. He signed up for retreat. What we were doing is we were going to Mammoth, as we are in a few weeks, and we met, we meet at 4 o'clock in the morning, and we pair everybody up, make sure everybody has somebody to drive with and to fellowship with and all of that. And so we talked to him, and he wanted to drive by himself. And he was very adamant about it, so okay. So we drive from here, and we go to Bishop, and we have breakfast together in Bishop. And so we drove there, and we never saw him. And then we have Bible study that night as we get to our condos, and we never saw him. 
The next morning we saw him, but he didn't hang around for, um, for the devotions in the morning. And then that evening I was asking somebody, where's so-and-so? And they said, well, he ended up driving back home. And then it was a couple weeks later that his wife and he left the church and she wrote me a scathing letter of how unloving and how unfriendly a church we were. Well, the problem was is that he never entered in. He, he was on the peripheral. He was on the border but he didn't enter into the beauty of the Lord. And the beauty of the Lord is the fellowship that we have with God and through his people. And so there's the results of Moses' decision in verses 20 through 28. Um, I'm not going to read it through, but they did go and they built these cities and they built these fortifications and these places for their livestock. And they went out and they joined the people and they prepared with them to go to battle, and we saw in Chronicles how that worked out for them. Entering into chapter 33, chapter 33 is really an itinerary of Israel's travel for the past 40 years. I'm not going to read through it all. I'll read the first four verses. These are the journeys of the children of Israel. We don't know why this is included right here, but obviously it's just the itinerary before they enter into their final destination. But these are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. And they departed from Ramses in the first month of the 15th day of the first month. On the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians, for the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. And so... This includes all the things that happened in the past and a few of the things that will happen in the future as they enter into the promised land. So just going through it very quickly, starting from Egypt and going through to the promised land, you've got verses 3 through 15, and they take us from Egypt to Mount Sinai. So from Egypt to Mount Sinai, and Mount Sinai we know that there was the giving of the law and the instruction for building the tabernacle. The giving of the law so that you know what is necessary for God to dwell among you. The tabernacle, that place where the glory of God was going to dwell. Now that whole time frame was about two years. Then verses 16 through 36 take us from Sinai to Kadesh and the spies. When the spies went into the promised land and came back with their report that lacked faith. And so Israel, Israel was turned away and they wandered in the wilderness for some 38 years. Now, between verse 36 and 37, that's a 38-year time period. doesn't really mention it, but God's not wanting to get into the details of a lack of faith any more than he already has. And so, verse 36, they move from place to place, from the wilderness of Zin, which is in Kadesh. Then verse 37, they move from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor in the boundary of the land of Edom. So in between those two verses is about 38 years. Verses 37 through 49, take us from Kadesh to the plains of Moab, where we are right now. And in the midst of all of this traveling and all of this wandering, is simply a reminder of the sovereignty of God in your life. And that's the whole point. Is God sovereign in your life? Is he 
the Lord of your life. Either way, in their obedience and their disobedience, God was still sovereign over their lives. Because again, what did he do? He led them through the wilderness. They could have taken the two-week journey and come up to the promised land, but they were following that cloud and that pillar that guided them throughout all of those years. And they were learning. They were learning dependency upon God. They were learning obedience to his word and the knowledge of what he is able to do so that when the time came about, that they would move forward in obedience. Paul, writing the deepest theology in the scriptures in the book of Romans, in chapter 11 at the end of it, he just comes to this place that in his life, this doxology just breaks out. Just looking at the sovereignty of God and all that God's done, and he just says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Verse 50 of Numbers 33 to the end of the chapter Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, so they're right on the cusp here, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Cana, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, For I have given you the land to possess, and you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance amongst your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to a smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But, and that's a big word, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, if you allow the world and the things of the world or the flesh to dwell with you, if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And it's exactly what had happened. They didn't drive him out. Just as Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh weren't totally obedient, neither were the other tribes. They didn't drive everybody out. And God said, just as I thought to do to them to drive them out, they ended up getting driven out. They got driven out by Assyria, the northern tribes, and they got driven out by Babylon, Judah, and uh, um, Benjamin. And so... You see, God is true to his word. But what did he ever ask from us? The only thing he asked from us is, is that we would be obedient and that we would walk by faith. And that's the hard thing. It's easier said and it's easier heard, but it can be hard to do. Because our eyes tell us one thing, but I have to go, not according to my heart, because my heart is deceptive and very evil, but I have to go according to what God has spoken to me. We need to head the direction that God has laid out before us. And what did he tell Joshua? Don't veer off to the left. Don't veer off to the right. But stay on that straight path. Oh, Father, that we would stay on that straight path in our lives. That we would not veer from one side or the other. But, Father, all the things that are written in your word. And again, Lord, that you speak to us through your word. That, Father, I pray that we would be found faithful. That, Lord, we would enter into the beauty of a relationship with you. 
And Father, most of us would think, well, I have entered in, I, I am saved, but Lord, I pray that we would be all in, that we would gain the totality of the relationship that you have for us, and, and Lord, every benefit that there is because of that. Lord, your word tells us that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution, but Father, I'd rather have persecution from the world than correction from you. And so, Father, again, may we be found as people who are obedient, moving forward, receiving all that you would have, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple more announcements. Um, some people have been asking for the petition. The petition is about the same-sex bathroom thing and, and that, and so we're, we have a petition that we want things returned like the 